Hello and welcome to the second episode of Unscripted. I don't have a guest today, so it's just going to be me babbling about a couple of topics. I'm hoping to talk about a, a game announcement, um, a response to a question raised about last week's topic, um, which will probably segue into discussing um, kind of naturalism, since I consider myself a naturalist, a little bit on pragmatism, and comment on a podcast on Valium Price that I thought was really interesting that um, I might link in like the little notes for this episode so you guys can have a listen to it as well. Um, so game announcement first. BlizzCon just rolled around. Uh, and if you either had the virtual tickets or you've been paying attention, they always do, this is kind of, they save up their big announcements for the for BlizzCon. And I would say this has been one of the biggest ones because I'm not a huge, I don't really play WoW. I'm not a huge Overwatch player, nor a StarCraft player. So like, they have those big IPs, but none of them really matter to me. I have, however, been a, I've always been a fan of the Diablo series. While last year they announced Diablo Immortal, and that was a letdown because a lot of people were anticipating a Diablo 4 announcement. And that's what's happened this year. I would, if you, if you have any interest in gaming, if you don't intend on playing the game, it's worth actually having a look at the cinematic for it because it's very beautiful. That Blizzard does just make really nice cinematics. The game is encouraging in that it looks like they're going back to their roots, which is seems to be the um, approach that um, they took in Borderlands as well, and that's been largely successful. Going back to your roots is actually a good thing. Um, it's possible to just kind of overdo kind of wanting it to be a different thing and for it to end up kind of horrible. So I'm pretty excited. We, good times with Diablo 4 coming in. That's that's gaming. Uh, the Overwatch trailer and the Valve trailer are actually really nice to watch. Um, the Overwatch trailer is basically them announcing that they're going to release um, something like a sequel. So what I'm getting out of it. You're going to have to shell out some money, but you'll be getting... Overwatch 2 with a PvE mode. And that's kind of appealing to me since I am a PvE player. So I guess that's kind of appealing. They've changed the art style. Apparently there's a law reason for changing the art style. I'm struggling to imagine what kind of law reason causes an art style, like a mild reality warp. But um, I haven't really looked at like the details of that game. Uh, but WoW, my own, like, I really don't understand the WoW law. So me looking at it, I uh, just only take away that Sylvanas has gotten a hell of a lot stronger. Uh, that's also worth watching, and I don't want to spoil it. Um, let's see. Oh, before that, I will, I'll just give like a heads up. Riot's also announced a whole bunch of games as well. So I think there's a little bit of a Riot versus Blizzard war in play. Also, Blizzard probably needed to release this um, in relation to kind of its... Um, PR screw up, really, with the Hearthstone uh, guy that they um, banned and took the prize money off. So, with um, the last episode, uh, one of the one of um, a commentator sent in a question, and they were listening to most of the podcast. I get it. I, I have a tendency to put a podcast on and just do something else, like drive or I'm at work. Um, and they're just half listening, and they ask the question: If animal suffering is natural law, 
why doesn't that apply to humans? That's the first part of what they asked. And I'm going to say it depends on how um, who you're talking to and how exactly that religious person is addressing the problem of evil. So if you're talking to like someone who takes like a free will defense, then they don't really answer this question. Natural evil isn't really answered by a free will defense. Um, what you're going to find is that Plantinga is saying something along the lines of um, because humans have free will, all evils are traced back to us having free will and doing something bad or silly. Right? So we, we kind of, all of it's self-inflicted. Um, compare that with someone who might have a little bit more of a down-the-line, greater good theodicy. If they have a greater good theodicy, then what they might say to you is, God creates natural laws and doesn't really like to tinker with them. right? And because God's created the natural laws and doesn't tinker with them, then you'll see the presence of natural evils because the system is kind of like um, there's no they what's kind of snuck in there is the idea that there's no way to construct natural laws such that they wouldn't have one or two bad things happening to people. So that's snuck in there. It's a suppressed premise, but usually worth granting. It it is hard to imagine a natural a set of natural laws that essentially cares or guarantees good stuff. It's an angle attack you take, just not one I would take. Um, and that's common in kind of more recent responses. So you see this in open theism and you see this in process theodicy. Um, both of them just say, God creates a natural world. Um, God doesn't like tampering with the rules because he's not tampering with the rules most of the time. Um, you get natural phenomena roll about and cause harm. <clears throat> and then so they, I think they're just biting the bullet here. And, and yeah, take that whichever way you want. Um, but it does say something interesting, and this is where I tailor it. The second part of the question of that my commentator was asking is, what would not be natural then? Strictly speaking, and this is just my take on it, if you have, if you're a theist and you have a god that's a creator, and that god is also someone with which you can have a personal relationship. So this is a creator god you can have a personal relationship with, right? And wants you to be in a personal relationship with them then you have like a personal creator God. If a personal creator God creates the world and it's omniscient, omnipotent, and actually a good uh, God, then strictly speaking, even when it sets up natural laws that roll about, so like a giant clock that's been wound up and runs, right? Like say, even if you're a deist, this kind of applies. Um, it's not really natural, or not natural in the sense I would talk about what you kind of it, it's it's like we should put natural laws in square scare codes and the natural world in scare codes it looks that way so you might have a theory of gravity for the large part the theory of gravity is going to work right and that's because god's not intervening however strictly speaking in this scenario things could potentially kind of not follow natural law because there's kind of a greater uh, power in play that can violate it, right? So it doesn't have the full scope of power that you'd normally expect it to have. So what I prefer, or I've been leaning towards saying, is when we're considering theism, what you're really talking about is not really natural and unnatural, or natural and supernatural. 
what you're talking about is close to the same ordinary and extraordinary. The ordinary world is largely law-like, right? It's very similar to what a scientist could say is governed by natural laws. But there, to a theist, there is something extraordinary in play. It is a higher power, a higher being that can intervene upon the ordinary. And when they do so, that intervention can very much be in the form of something that violates the kind of natural laws we think should happen, right? So uh, an example of this would be, if you're looking at ordinary, extraordinary parts of the world, right? Ordinarily, water is something you can't walk on, liquid water, right? You can't normally walk on liquid water with your feet. I'm sure you could mess around and be pedantic and find a way in which I'm wrong. But I think you all get the impression that you just can't go out to the beach, for example, and just start walking across it. That's that's the ordinary world for you. A scientist is going to come along and sketch out a theory for why um, it is that human beings can't walk on water because this is some kind of not, it is governed by natural laws, right? So this is the way it's going to happen. However, again, in a theistic worldview, you have something extraordinary. You have a higher power of being that can intervene upon natural order to create a new scenario. And then you can have someone walk on water. And then you can have the transmutation of water to wine or water to blood, right? You can have that all firstborn spontaneously die or that there is a global flood. These don't obey natural laws and indicate to you that there are no actual natural laws, I mean, strictly speaking, of a world in which God exists. There are things that look like it and approximate it, but just don't have um, that full governance of the world. Compare that to my worldview. In my worldview, there is nothing but the natural world. Or, if you wish, there's nothing but the ordinary world. There is nothing extraordinary, no higher power or being. So there's no thing that kind of intervenes and creates, like, say, a temporary exception to natural laws. If anything, if I see an exception to natural uh, a natural law, say I look at dark matter, or uh, I start to think about the, bi uh, the Big Bang, and there's a problem, right? The natural laws seem to break down. Um, I don't say that this is the this is something extraordinary intervening upon natural laws and temporarily creating an exception. I say that my physics is currently immature. It needs more work, and that a better physics would simply not have this exception occur at all. Right? This whatever this weird scenario is, it would just fit. It would slot straight back in. Uh, that's the way that I describe it. So I've been just trying to flesh this out in my head and. I'll probably work towards describing it better, but I really am leaning towards this distinction between an ordinary and an extraordinary, right? And to a naturalist like me, in terms of talking to the average person, I'm saying that everything is ultimately ordinary with no extraordinary supervening upon the ordinary to create temporary exceptions. If anything, if I notice something that's an exception to my physics, then what's happened or what I see that as is that my physics is um, still immature. It still needs work. And that once that, once that leap is made, once we get to, uh, say, quantum physics 2.0 or gravity 3.0, right, that exception will no longer be one. It will just be part of the theory, right? It just fits nicely back in to the physics. That's, that's um, kind of my response. So question, just looping it back, is... If animal suffering is natural law, why doesn't that apply to human beings? Well, 
it doesn't apply in the way it looks like it applies, right? So on one, you either have the case that God sets up natural laws and chooses not to intervene to them, which means that it is natural evil, but this is natural evil in the context of an omniscient, omnipotent being that could theoretically made it otherwise. It's choosing not to intervene in natural law. Maybe it's a kind of semi-utilitarian God or semi-consequentialist God for which um, some greater good comes of not intervening. But or on the other hand, oh, I've lost it. That's that's just the problem I see, right? So this is, we say natural, but it's not exactly natural. Nothing quite is. This is a God whose influences um, kind of spread throughout the world. And so I'd say that you more have an ordinary and an extraordinary super beings on the ordinary creates a weird situation. Um, and that's something that I definitely have to flesh, flesh out. It reminds me of a discussion that I haven't yet had gotten to have, but um, when I'm on Discord a ton, a lot of people get into metaphysics and epistemology, and I'll say I'm a pragmatist. And I realize that that's not something that makes as much sense as I thought it does. Uh, so if I say I'm a pragmatist, a lot of people read that as me saying that I'm like a utilitarian or consequentialist, or they read the word pragmatic in this like common sense frame. So um, if I say that someone's pragmatic, you you understand that to mean that someone does what serves their interests. How pragmatism as a philosophy isn't about me doing things or believing things because they serve my interests itself. Um, I'm capable of believing things that um, really aren't like happy truths and don't directly uh, serve my interests in like the way that it's like, um, you know, it's not me being cunning about epistemology or metaphysics. It's something else. So in the first instance, um, I'm a Piercean type pragmatist. There are other forms. You can, you can be inspired by William James or Dewey um, or, or Rorty, right? These are some of the bigger names in it. Um, there are other philosophers on pragmatism. And the word is an umbrella term, sort of like uh, when we talk about empiricists, right? They've also got multiple thinkers in the, in the game, and you can definitely pick different ones. But I go after the grandfather of pragmatism, and I'm a Piercean type. So Charles Sanders Pierce, I think, 19th century somewhere around there, kind of eight, late 1800s to early 1900s is where he worked. So it's pretty old. And um, <clears throat> what, what, we're, what he's tried to do is, in my head, what he's done is he's looked at philosophy and he's decided that much of the problems that occur in philosophy have to do with us having unclear language about the problem, right? Uh, we ask, we we get stuck into these debates about truth and reality and morality and so on. And it's not that there is actually that much conflict to be had. It's just that these terms are kind of uh, poorly constructed. And when they're poorly constructed, we're going to get stuck in the mud and these debates are going to go on for centuries because the terms are muddy. And he has a strong respect for the analytical tradition in philosophy, which there's something similar, quite similar. It has that emphasis on clarifying one's terms. But 
What Pierce does, what makes him a pragmatist, what makes him the first pragmatist is he adds an extra consideration. So if you're wondering, under analytical philosophy, you have the concept of a clear and obscure conception, right? Is this clear or is this obscure? You have distinct and confused conceptions. Um, the first one <clears throat> has to do with um, how we, uh, let me think of this. This really is unscripted, so I am actually just babbling as we go. Uh, so that's what's going to happen. Uh, I'll come back to it. What he adds is that in order to, it's not just about defining your terms or clarifying your terms, right? We need to know, and it's it seems minor, but we need to know what happens if the concept is right or wrong. That's different to knowing what the concept is, right? So one can definitely think about what does the concept of God mean? But what Pierce is asking is you do that and you also need to know what does it mean if God exists? That needs to be settled. <clears throat> when it is settled, then we can have a genuine productive discussion. But when it is not settled, then we are kind of operating with a ghost of a concept. Right, and that's just going to be messy and muddled. So, what he's always doing, kind of linking it all back, is he starts off as a very semantic philosopher. Right, he's just he's sitting there and asking, "Do these words have meaning?" Um, and when they have meaning, then we'll think about them. Uh, there's a pragmatic maxim. Uh, you may or may not be aware of it, but. I want to skip that because I don't think it helps. Um, we I'd rather look at um, examples, right? And an example he gave was, funnily enough, a Catholic tradition. So in Catholicism, I think it's the Eucharist, they have the doctrine of transubstantiation. And what that means is that there's a moment in which they serve you the blood and body of Christ. Okay? This is a wine and usually a wafer. But they say that while it has, when they serve you this wafer, and it's usually a little disc that's plasticky. It's not a tasty disc, but it's a little disc, usually white and like it resembles a bread that Jesus handed out the, law, um, the, final, uh, the final meal or something before his crucifixion. It's a painting where you see him at the center. I think it's Mary off to the side and his disciples. But what it is, is you've got wine, you've got a wafer, and the Catholics say that while it looks like bread, um, wine and a wafer, and there's no real, there's nothing you could do to like see that it is uh, anything but wine or a wafer, it is still, in reality, blood. And in reality, part of the body of Christ. Uh, and what Pierce does is he actually picks on that. This is where we can understand what the pragmatic maxim, what, what pragmatism is about. He looks at it and says, it's nonsense, right? If you have something and I look at it and it is for all, it is by all measures, every, you know, everything I could think of it um, is by all measures, you know, to all our senses at once, it is wine, then it is wine, right? This is what we mean when we say that um, you know, when we're talking about all effects being the whole of the conception of the object, right? All the effects of this thing is wine. Therefore, 
it is wine, right? It's almost, it is similar to what we can call duck typing and programming. You know, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and looks like a duck, it is a duck. And I quite like it. It's, there's more to it. Um, another example you could think about is, you know, if you were to go to a hotel and the person before you checks in and the, pers and the person that says, this is a key and gives the person the key and he goes off and unlocks his door. Then you go up to the desk and the person at the desk gives you an object. The object looks like a key, looks like that key that the other guy was handed. Everything about it is a key to you, right? It's a little bit of metal shaped such that it can open a little kind of locks that you see in doors, right? And they say to you, but it's not a key. Right, you have a not key. The person before you has a key, you have a not key, and then the person after you, they come along. You're looking at your object, and you're like, okay, you know, or this has all the sensible character of a key, but it's not a key. That's what I'm told. So the next person comes along, they get an object that is identical to what you got. You know, again, same bit of metal, same color of metal, um, same kind of cuts into it to open the same kinds of locks, right? And they're told it's a key. Now you're confused, right? You're going to look at your object and you're going to be like, I have a non-key key that, I have a non-key object, not a key yet, that for all intents and purposes is identical to that key that the other two got, the one before me, the one after me. It does everything the same. It looks the same. You might go up to the counter and you ask the lady, right? You ask the person at the counter, can you tell me what's different about this key? Because if you can, I'll give you a money for it, right? It, it has value. Like, I want to know the one thing that makes it not a key. And they look at you and they say, well, there is nothing, but it is not a key. So it's these kind of confusions that Pierce is targeting, right? He's saying, we can only really recognize the meaning of things by their kind of effects. And when we say effects, we don't necessarily mean real world effects. We mean cognitive effects, like how we think as human beings, right? So if I hand you a pen, and cognitively, this, no, sorry, I hand you a, a long cylindrical object which you can write, right? And then you pick it up, and it's just cognitively in every sense of the word. Like, your senses are yelling at you, and your mind is processing this, and there's just nothing that makes this different to a pen, another kind of pen, right? Or pens that you've experienced before. It is a pen, right? Um, this targets a sense in philosophy where sometimes there's this expectation of an essence to things, right? So what makes a pen isn't its characteristics, it's penness. An object has to have penness to be a pen. A triangle has to have triangleness to be a triangle, as opposed to registering it by its, um, say, features. So all this sounds really useful for objects, but what's fascinating is this can be applied to concepts, right? We can apply this to truth by asking what are the features of truth? What are the effects of truth? What is its cognitive significance and all kind of habits that it encourages? And this is how we determine what truth is. And this is where I really want to go to, right? Um, the discussion of the pragmatic maxim is its thing, but I want to try and demonstrate here that it actually goes somewhere fascinating. It doesn't just apply to like, this is a smartphone because it has all characteristics of a smartphone. It goes and helps you redefine truth, or at least take on the concept of truth to really interesting directions, right? So just to start truth off, it has 
several features. There's several marks by which we would expect something to be true. Firstly, it's that if something is true, it's because it is the case, right? Like that's what we mean when we say um, it is true the cat sat on the mat, then that's the case because they, the cat did sit on the mat. The other thing, though, is we expect, and this is an intuition we have about truth, is when we say that something is true, it's no real different to saying that sentence. So if I say, um, it is true that my phone is on the desk, this is not different from saying my phone is on the desk. They're the same thing, right? Uh, the sense of equivalence with truth adding nothing becomes a problem. And I'll demonstrate real quick. Say you're a correspondence theory person, right? You say, what makes something true is that it is the case, right? That's what we said earlier, right? So, you know, it's, my, it's only true that my phone is on the desk when my phone is on the desk, right? And the world has to be such, like, you know, uh, this has to correspond to reality, then we have a problem because now when we say something is true, we're not just saying the phone is, it's not just a statement the phone is on the desk. It has to actually tie into a, there being a world in which there is a phone on the desk. It seems new, it seems like a pedantic point, but the point being made here is that for correspondence theory to work, you're not, when you say something is true, we're not just saying a sentence. That's not what I'm doing. Like it's not just equivalent to that sentence. When something's true, it's true because a that sentence is true, but also that sentence corresponds to some state of reality, right? But because you have this deal where truth is a because it's the sentence and because it corresponds to reality, now when I say the cat is on the mat is true, that sentence is not the same as the cat is on the mat because the is true part specifies extra stuff right for it to be true it actually has to be the case of reality subtle but this goes into something called the free regress it, it means that um <clears throat> uh when we say the proposition is true it's no longer equivalent to the proposition itself it fails this requirement that a true statement is just a statement our coherence theory also suffers the same thing, but I'll leave that as a puzzle for you. Um, looking at that, this is why you get um, attempts to redefine truth that don't use correspondence or coherence. So correspondence or coherence, that's something you're going to hear all over Discord. A lot of people are going to talk to you about, I use the correspondence theory, I use coherence. And that's good, but ever since Freak's regress, this kind of hang on, your quality of truth involves extra properties, meaning that it can't, it's not the same to say that this is true and that's the same as the sentence, right? So, you know, my cup is on the desk is not the same as saying it is true that my cup is on the desk because the extra qualities required, either that um, for it to be true that my cup is on the desk, not only am I, not only is it the utterance, it is that there's a reality in which my cup is on the desk and it is, and we are in that reality or with coherence, that my cup is on the desk coheres with this, the other beliefs I have, right? So both break down and have issues. So Pierce tries to reform it. And remember, we're reforming in the light of pragmatic maxim. So his first attempt, the one that um, you could say is like near canonical of him, is what's called Pierce's convergent theory, convergence, convergence theory right? And this is the idea that. Um, any proposition, belief, or theory 
is true if and only if it's um, still held to be the case at the end of inquiry. Now, this is really weird. First of all, we have a mark by which we can talk about when things are true and false, right? But so say my, uh, if I talk about, let's not talk about cups because there, there's an issue here, but let's talk about uh, science. Let's talk about gravity, right? Because this is where this works best. The theory of gravity is true if at the end, we know when we're done with science, and I'll get into that in a moment, it still is the case. So in this weird way, truth, when we say something is true, it's almost like a wager. There's something about it that's wager-like. The reason being is science hasn't ended. So we can't yet declare things to be true in the strong sense of the word. What we can do is say, I expect this to remain to be the case, right? I expect that our theory of gravity will remain to be the case or some elements of it will remain to be the case, right? I expect that gravity remains to be a force or that things continue to fall, right? It's, an, it's almost like an expectation now. And the shift uh, means that when you utter something's true, say, say uh, I say, my phone is on the table. That's a proposition. It's true that my phone's on the table. Then I'm saying that I expect that my phone, phone's on the table. It has a cognitive significance. It's what it means to me to say that something's true, which is fine. It makes sense that when we say something is true, it's because it means that sentence. It doesn't seem to trigger off freak's regress so quickly. Um, but one can argue that it does. My, my point is just to highlight what it means. So when we say end of science, there is some ca- there's a catch here. Pierce is talking about infinite inquiry. He's saying if we if science goes on forever, with it just it just keeps going forever, then something, then it's at the end of that forever process. Which the end of forever is a bit of a nuts concept, but at the end of forever, the theories we still have, those are the true ones. That's how we know it, right? Um, so it's it's sort of like uh, another way of phrasing this is just that. You know, if a group of experts at the end of infinity believes that something is true, then it is true. The end of infinity is um, a long way off. But this does give you a kind of measure, right? So if you ask if something, you know, is gravity true? Well, if experts investigate this for more time, they just keep investigating it, will they still hold it to be the case? And if they do, then it is true, right? This is reconstruction of truth not in terms of correspondence because it's not saying that it is true in that it's like true of a real world or coherence this is truth in terms of if we come back in the future people still believe this experts still believe this right experts who are still investigating this not just people but you know investigators in the future still hold this to be the case there's another approach right freaks regress is really, really hard to fight. One can argue that even that convergence theory of PS fails, right? Because it's still in, you cannot, it's still introducing an extra feature of truth um, that's going to pull it apart. So we can do something else. We can do what's called a deflationary theory of truth. And this is not uncommon. At least if you guys are this good debating, then consider this, right? 
Most we're going to talk about corresponding theory or coherence theory, but there is at least a third option for you, a simple big category of third option. It's called deflationary theories of truth. And the deflationary theory of truth will say the word true adds nothing. It says nothing at all, right? So if I say my cup is on my desk, right? And I say my cup is on the desk, that sentence is true. That, that sentence is true part adds nothing. It's like plus zero to a statement. It doesn't do anything, right? It's more like an emotional utterance in a language, in a natural language, just to kind of you know compel you. It's like me saying, this is really the case. That's it. It's not adding any more. <clears throat> so a deflationary theory of truth is fascinating in that it resolves regression issues, but it also has that implication that truth is an empty term. It doesn't do anything, right? When you say something is true, you're simply just reasserting that sentence. Um, I like to use a blend. I'm gonna, I like to hybridize between the convergence theory and the deflationary theory. And I say, when we say something is true, we say that it's true because it fits, um, you know, the effects of that statement kind of work out. They play out in the world, right? So um, if I say my cup's on the table, it's everything else that entails suggests, you know, my, if I say I have a cup and my cup, the only one I have is on the table, then you can say, well, then your cup is on the bed at the same time, right? It's what all the stuff it entails makes it powerful. It's very functional. But also what makes this true is that it would continue to be so. Uh, not in the sense of my cup's going to stay on the table forever, but as in you can bet on these kind of consequences, right? It's what a truth, what makes something true is found in all its little entailments, right? Uh, so it's found in um, if this is the case and things that rely upon it will also be the case. So this is, um, you know, if P then Q, P therefore Q, right? That's a sense of measuring up truth. That's modus ponens for you. And it's also found in it being a, a wager type entity. So it's like, you know, I wager that gravity is true. Uh, gravity will remain to be the case, which is what I think truth means, right? So I'm not a full PSN. I use a bizarre mix of deflation, which I'll remind you, deflation is simply that truth adds nothing, and convergence, right? Convergence being that if people continue to investigate something, then they converge upon, uh, they're drawn towards a fact of the matter, and that fact of the matter is the actual truth, right? So we converge upon truth. And I blend the two, and I say, I blend the two, and I think of the pragmatic maxim, which, right, the side of the conversation, I was telling you that the pragmatic maxim is all about thinking about the entailments when we speak, right? So if I say, this is a non-wafer, and you pick it up, and it's just everything about it cognitively, since to your senses, everything about it is a wafer, then it is just a wafer, right? You cut out the, you cut out the uh, insisted upon garbage when thinking about terms, right? And so too with the truth. You, I, I'd say that you go to the cutting floor. With, you don't have to be a pragmatist like me, but you are, I would strongly tell, encourage you to go to the cutting floor, cut out the bits of the concept that just don't, like, you know, people say truth is this, but is it really, right? You've got to go there, look at it, what it entails, what it means for this or that to be the case about even a concept like truth. The last thing I want to talk about is just a um, podcast I was listening to that I know, just caught my eye. Um, so we're, we're done with like my rap babble about pragmatism and metaphysical stuff. Economics. I'm not good at economics. So this is going to be a really rough kind of 
babble about it, but I wanted to talk about it nonetheless. Uh, I was listening to a couple of podcasts, and I'm going to just pull this up on the phone. Um, the podcast I was listening to was about rethinking value. So value is a concept that is fairly common sense, right? What makes things valuable? Different to its price. And that's where that, diff- that difference is going to become important. So it's a long now seminar by the, uh, someone. Oh, no, I've lost it. I'll have to look up. Oh, actually, yeah, no, I have the name. Mariana Mazzucato. And she's, she writes a book, The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. Interesting book. I actually have got myself a copy of it, and I'm just reading through the introduction. But what she talks about is that classical economics, right? When we think about economics, there's a classical era in it, and the classical era is like Smith and Ricardo, even Marx to a degree, right? All these guys, they looked at the economy, and they start at a very interesting point. They start all their TSEs at talking about how things have value at all, right? That's their starting point, right? All three of them roughly arrive at the same point. And their point is that value comes from labor, right? When anything's valuable, we're talking about the kind of uh, human hours that went into its creation, right? I'm not saying that's correct. That is essentially a labor theory of value, which you guys may have run into. If you have, probably heard it from a Marxist since it's very strongly a part of Marx's critique of capitalism and isn't really alive kind of elsewhere. So uh, that particular analysis of value is kind of broken down. But what's important here is they talked about value first, then price second, right? So you have this concept, uh, a theory of value. Then from the theory of value, you could understand the price of things, right? This then allowed them to look at economies and talk about um, how valuable each type of work is. And the conclusions reached by a lot of classical economists was that certain types of activity really had no value to them. Like they, they weren't value creators. And that type is well known to us. And it is rentiers. It's landlords, right? They don't really put in labor. And because they're not putting in labor, they can't create value, at least to Marx and Adam, um, Marx and Smith and his kin. And to, to classical economics at the time, that's how they saw it, right? And this goes to something fascinating. I'd, I'd throw it out to you and I'd give you a couple of seconds to think about it. We say the free market. And I know what you think the free market probably is. All right, I can guess what you think it is free of. But I'm going to tell you it's not the government. So what then is it? Give it a bit of thought. So the free market is free of landlords, not the state. That, but you're going to get that. It's going to be thrown at you so many times because today that's what it means. right? Um, if you get like a libertarian or something, they're going to tell you about hazard, the free market. I mean, I am... I have libertarian sympathies, right? And I get it, right? I have my critiques of the state. But the free market, I thought about, about for a classical econo- economist, like your, your kind of pioneers in this field, was free of people who made their money not on investing labor, but investing, well, earnings, right? Investing possessions and so on, right? They, didn't, they weren't putting in any 
hours themselves. And so they weren't creating value. And an ideal free market would be um, would not have these this category of people who don't really create value. They just kind of move it around kind of deal, right? They're, they're more like managers instead of creators of our world. Um, and so that's the classical view. What does this matter? I mean, I'm not a communist, right? I'm more, I am a capitalist of a kind. But this matters in that economic sense of wealth, right? They had those pioneers, you had the classical era. We live largely in a neoclassical era, right? Neo meaning rebirth. And so you might be thinking, well, okay, so we're back to the pioneer work. Yes, for a large part, right? For a large part, we use some of the same ideas. However, we don't have any more a distinctive theory of value. Instead, where the pioneers once said talked of value and then price, we today talk about price as a measure of value. Price is now taken to be this thing that we can look at the price of something and it will tell us about the value of that object. And at first blush, that makes so much sense, right? Everything has a dollar amount. I just look at it and that will tell me how valuable that is to someone, right? I mean, would you pay money for something that's worth nothing? No, right? So price should indicate value. And that's a tenet of neoclassical economics, which is the era in which we currently exist. But it has problems, right? So neoclassical economics has two pretty serious problems. One, where in the past to a classical economist, a landlord contributed nothing. Today, when prices tell you about value, a landlord is a massive contributor. They make so much money. We pay them so much to stay in their places, right? You pay that guy rent. And if you're paying that guy rent, then that tells you about value, right? Therefore, we get a situation, not just of landlords. I'm not talking about like some small owner. It gets bigger and bigger. So you go up to like the financial markets, right? You get people whose work is largely in moving around money. And you get statements that go out as crazy. It's like a Goldman Sachs guy who and this actually happened, you can look it up, who says Goldman Sachs workers are the, some of the most productive in the world. And the reason he can say that is because price tells us about value, and value tells us about productivity. So if he's paying his workers a ton, and this is after a bailout, then because he's paying his workers a ton, then they're value creators. And if they're value creators, they're so productive. In fact, they're more productive than anyone else right that's one issue so you know this kind of rhetoric of um prices determine value gives us the impression that the financial markets are really the value creators not um say industry not laborers or even content creators you're not really the value creators you do create content sure however uh the people investing in you and so on and people investments they're they're the real productivity people which I, I think the problems that are obvious, you can hear the, it in my inflection. Um, another way to look at it, and these are the other two problems, right, is that there are actual bits um, in which people do things and there is no price attached. It's just the way the world works, right? There's no price attached to being a housewife. There's no price attached to being a pastor. And look, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a liberal atheist, but I'm going to just, out there. There's no price attached to being a monk. There's no price attached 
to a whole bunch of work that people do, often women, right? No price attached to it. I remember if prices tell us about value, then when there's no price attached to being a housewife or raising kids or even being a house husband, let's, let's get some liberalism in here, right? Being a house husband or being, um, you know, uh, any of these positions, right? If there's no price attached to it, then the inference that we make as a society, the narratives we tell, is that there isn't value, right? We, we all, I mean to say that we can say that there's value. We can all talk to each other and say, housewives do important things, house husbands do important things. However, I will maintain that with our core paradigm being price to value, we hugely undervalue these things that people do. Right, the, the degree to which we undervalue this is nuts. Right, we we compensate the Goldman Sachs banker, but we don't compensate carers because much care, much of the care that's ever delivered in a society is unpaid, and if it's unpaid, we tend to not really value it. Third problem, right, and this is weird for me to argue, some libertarian sympathies is that public programs don't really have a price, not to you. Not really in, I mean, they have a price for delivering, but there's not a price in terms of like you pay money to go to public school. I mean, you wouldn't, right? But when we talk about the buying prices of things, right, for people who consume it, and public goods don't have that, you know, like there's no price for a park, there's no price for a public school, there's no price really for public healthcare in terms of you actually going there, forking out money, right? Then, there's no measure of value for these things either. I mean, there's no measure of value for public things, for, for all these public projects. Then what happens is we also tend to undervalue these things, right? Teachers get underpaid. Um, a, a fun example of this is even things like, take a smartphone, right? Most of the technologies that go into your smartphone or most of the technologies that went into an iPhone at least were funnily enough created by publicly funded research in California, right? That's not often spoken about, but it was actually uh, public taxpayer dollars that created the, the component technologies in many smartphones today, right? Um, private research and development is an important thing. I'm all for it, but I do believe in paying things back. Uh, but the thing about publicly funded research is that there isn't really a price on it. You don't really need to, like, Apple didn't need to purchase it per se, right? Um, the expectation was that um, Apple would simply pay its taxes, right? As a taxpayer, it would just, you know, help fund future research. But it actually um, moved its headquarters well out of the country. <laughs> uh, it actually moved it to Nevada, where it had a tax haven and then has some headquarters in like Ireland and internationally. So it's done a very good job of not paying for it, for the benefits it's received from the public, from taxpayer dollars. And again, like I said, for that which you don't pay, we can't really, there's not really a social sense of value to it. There's one in terms of us just conversationally talking and saying, yeah, these people are valuable. But we live in a society that's largely neoclassical in which value is pulled from prices. And so you've got to think of all these things for which we don't pay at all. We can try and reconstruct it. Certainly, there's a lot of work by economists to kind of sketch out um, kind of what the price of these things should be. But I think in the first place, 
we might need a return. A true neoclassical era in which we start talking about tier value again. We start talking about what is valuable, right? Um, and I don't think it will necessarily be labor. I think um, there'll be other elements to it. It will definitely be a much more sophisticated and complex here. I don't know if there's even going to be a, I say, objective measure of it. But I reckon a recreation of it would, would have a labor in there, should acknowledge the role of caregivers who aren't necessarily paid in money, but they deliver value, right? That all of us are, most of us in the first world live in aging populations. It, it bodes us well to think about the value of care and to compensate them correctly. Um, and even the value of public projects. We really shouldn't be thinking of the public versus the private and the public being this inept, useless thing. It is inept. It can be useless. However, when we talk about risk-taking, and I should have mentioned this earlier, really, um, one, of the justific- one of the points that people give to justify the earnings of things like Goldman Sachs is to say that they take on massive risks. And that's something that we mythologize and we think about and we say, well, you know, all these people, they make all their crazy money on all the uh, uh, crazy, risky investments they're making. Uh, we don't make those investments. They deserve the money. I'm going to cut into that. I'm going to remind us, remind everyone that realistically speaking, when it comes to crazy projects, whether it's big or just low odds, it's actually the government that takes the biggest risks. The government's more likely to invest um, in a kind of even-handed manner into whole bunches of things. Strictly speaking, it's often the crucible of many of these technologies. Where is the iPhone or even Tesla? And yes, Tesla did receive government grant, right? So did a whole bunch of other electric car companies that failed. The taxpayer is actually the greatest investor of them all, taking the far bigger risks, but there's never any compensation for it. And the reason there's no compensation for it is that we, we tie value to buying prices, and there's no buying price on the product of public research, right? We should be tying value to something else, something that acknowledges that the public, you know, the taxpayer dollar goes to crazy ass investments that sometimes don't have returns because they're really risky. They're crazy. I would would argue that for every risk ever taken by the wealthy, taxpayer dollars take risks that are nuts. It's sometimes even unwise. In fact, it's so unwise that you probably already believe the government to be a poor investor. And you should give that a moment. You think it's a poor investor because it invests crazily. Like it just takes risks it perhaps should not. But then if it takes these risks, then you know, when it pulls out, it should be also getting there should be a degree of return, right? There should be government revenue earned and put forward to future investment, right? This degree of reinvestment is going to become important. Right? Research and develop research and development depends on reinvestment. So that's my, that's my tirade. Uh, I'm going to try and sum that up. So in summary, classical economists think about value than price. Neoclassical economists think about price than value. And there are ways for them to kind of work around that. But I do think we need a revival of the discussion of what it is that makes things valuable. And that that discussion, when done well, I believe, will result in us seeing the value of things like private caregivers, and public teachers that would boost their wages. And in boosting their wages would actually make us more productive, more competitive, and a healthier form of capitalism. That's, that's my view there. 
Um, I babbled for a long time. We're getting to the hour marks. So I'm cutting us off now-ish. But if you've got any questions, um, if whatever channel of contact you've got with me, contact me. Or you can leave a recording on the Anchor site itself, and I'll have a listen to it. I'll probably that's probably going to be my favorite way of doing this. Do leave me that recording, and then I want to like put it in here and respond to it. Um, I'm still scoping, looking out for anyone who's kind of keen to have a one-on-one chat with me, or maybe something bigger. But when we don't, when I don't have someone to chat to, then I'm going to pick out a couple of topics and speak to what I believe about them. And one thing I want to just leave you all on: when I say stuff, I don't ever really think of myself as an authority. I think of myself as a gambler. Right, I'm gonna wager on these crazy ideas, and someone, if I'm wrong, I'm gonna find out sooner. You know, by me being gutsy, by me being out there, the benefit here isn't me being right. The benefit here is if I'm gutsy and crazy, someone's gonna call me out, and then I can make progress. Right, but if I retreat from my views, if I hide them under, you know, I, I, you know, I just inject in a ton of maybes and probably such a, you know. And I'm very defensive about it. All that wrap it on too many layers of irony, then the real loser is myself. I don't like that. And so I'll leave you all on a note of encouraging all of you to actually risk being wrong. Believe things. Have things that you passionately believe and defend and talk to. Make up theories about the world and genuinely risk being wrong. Drop the layers of irony. Drop the hedging, right? If you want to say that the earth is flat, then just say that the earth is flat and really risk being wrong. Keep your mind open to being debunked and learn from it, right? In my case, I'm going to say that there is no God, but I'm going to risk being wrong, right? And I think that's what society needs. Um, Maybe that's just a crazy liberal Emory and my belief in like marketplace of ideas being nuts, but that's my point for the day okay i'm setting it up you got comments leave them on the site or wherever else it is that you know contact me thanks for listening